Hi, this is Greg Lois. I'm here with Haley Jung, and today we're going to be talking about defending occupationals. Our contact information is up on the screen in case you need to reach us. You can be emailing us questions during today's presentation, and of course we'll be here to answer your questions at the end of the presentation. So I know you're wondering, um, wait a second, didn't you guys used to be at a different law firm? Yeah, last week we were. Uh, we're now together. Actually, all of my associates followed me over here to the Lois Law Firm. Uh, we're focusing on defending workers' compensation cases. Same exact crew we had, uh, all uh, 13 of my associates followed me over here. Um, we're hitting all hearing points south of Albany. That's all of the metropolitan New York hearing points. We're doing all of New Jersey. And we have the same handling guidelines. We're going to do cradle-to-grave handling, just what we've always done, one attorney per matter. Now, this is part of our overall outreach that we do with clients and others in the risk community. Um, everyone's familiar with my handbooks. Hopefully, you have one in front of you that you're thumbing through as we go through today's uh, webinar. Uh, please check out our new website, lois-llc.com. That's got every article I've ever written on the subject of workers' compensation. Uh, that's searchable by topic. Of course, we do these monthly webinars. We do them for New York and New Jersey. Uh, New York is always the third Monday of the month. New Jersey always the fourth Monday of the month. Today is the third Monday of the month, so we're doing New York. Uh, this has gotten such a great response that we're now having two sessions of our uh, New Jersey and New York webinars, uh, both at noon and 3 o'clock. Uh, please also sign up for our newsletter. The best way to sign up for our newsletter is on our website. Uh, you can search for the newsletter, and there's also a link. Finally, I know a lot of people uh, rely upon our handbooks. There will be new handbooks coming out uh, in December. Uh, they will go to the printer shortly, handbooks for New York, New Jersey, and Longshore. Today's webinar series is New York, and we're here to talk about uh, occupational claims. I hope you can hear me. If you can't, I always put up this slide to remind you that you can always dial into the conference code and enter the access code so you can listen to us live. Um, finally, any questions, please type in uh, today, and we'll be able to respond to your questions uh, at the end of the webinar. If we don't get to your question, please type it in anyway, because they do get emailed to us, and we can then answer you over email over the next couple days. All right, let me turn it over to Haley Jung. Hello. Um, as Greg introduced, my name is Haley Jung, and I'm going to be discussing occupationals and how to defend them today. So, you get a call from your client, uh, from your insured, with a question regarding an occupational injury. The question running through your head is, is it compensable? So today we're going to do a quick overview um, about what occupational claims are and how to defend them. Now, there are multiple types of injuries that are compensable, and today we're going to focus on occupationals, uh, which can also be known as repetitive trauma. This slide um, tells you the actual definition that's written in the code. Um, occupational injuries are compensable if they, one, result from the nature of the employment and the injury was also caused by a distinctive feature of the employment and not just a geographical or environmental condition. Yeah, and that one, for me, is always hard to parse. What is a distinctive feature? Uh, there's an interesting case, and in, it's one of the most uh, recent decided cases, about what actually constitutes a distinctive feature of the employment. Uh, in that case, an employee who was a ticket taker at a movie theater 
uh, was claiming that she had an occupational injury from being exposed to extremes of hot and cold. It was always either super hot in the movie theater or super cold in the movie theater. And she had um, installed in her ticket-taking booth, sorry, tongue twister, uh, a little heater uh, that she would crank up or turn off depending on the outside temperature. She claimed that that was uh, causing uh, her occupational injuries. Well, the board found that that was not a distinctive feature of the employment. As There's nothing they correctly sure. Yeah, of course, of course, it's so ridiculous. Uh, just that extremes of heat and cold, and in fact, extremes of heat and cold that you're controlling, are not distinctive to any one employment. So that's an interesting thought. We're really talking about something that, when we say distinctive feature of the employment, is something you would only be exposed to in the employment and not exposed anywhere else. Right. Now, in the line of defending occupational injuries, um, the next couple of slides, we have broken them down into four major sections. Um, first of all, we want the first line of defense we want to talk about is statute of limitations. Um, so the statute of limitations for occupational injuries is within two years of when the employee knew or should have known that the alleged condition or disease were due to the employment, or it's within two years of the date the employee was, quote, disabled, and the employee is given the benefit of choosing the later date of the two years. Of course, and in our experience, uh, there basically is no statute of limitations for an occupational disease claim right. because, you know, they, they may have not been exposed to the condition for years and years or in some cases decades when we talk about asbestosis claims. And the uh, injury is latent. The injury or the illness takes a long time to manifest itself. And so by the time they've figured out that they have an occupational disease, it might have been 10 years. So it's really difficult uh, to prevail in a statute of limitations or notice defense in an occupational disease context. We've also discovered uh, that most of the claimants, the first time that they decide that they have an occupational disease is when their attorney tells them. Right? Yes, Greg, uh, I agree. <laughs> that has been mostly my experience. Exactly. And, date and, of disablement. And they went to their physician or, or they went to their attorney after they retired or after they were laid off or after they completed the last project they worked on in the construction context. Uh, they were sent to a physician who then found them to be disabled. Uh, and that usually is a post-employment or, in our experience, has been a post-separation type of identification. Yes, I agree that that has been the case. And yet um, a lot of law judges do determine that based on the facts that they have filed the claim within the statute of limitations claim. and so mm -hmm. that is a defense that hasn't been favorable to carriers. Mm -hmm. Rarely successful but we always raise it. Yes we always do raise it. Um, now just to clarify or give you a more stricter definition of what a date of disablement is, generally it should be the date the employee first lost time from work or the date of the medical diagnosis of the alleged um, occupational disease or condition. However, an employee also may be entitled to benefits even if he or she did not lose any time. And the date of disablement is generally a determination that's made by the law just based on the facts that are presented to him or her. Right, and we say entitled to benefits, we mean the employee has been exposed to something in the workplace. Uh, there may be clear or convincing evidence of the actual exposure. Uh, they did get some medical, of course, after they spoke to their friendly attorney at law. Exactly. And when we say uh, ongoing benefits, maybe not wage benefits because they're still working, but things like medical monitoring or medical treatment. Yes. The third line of defense um, that we generally raise, and actually we always raise, is me medical diagnosis and causal relation. A key 
to successful defense of occupational claims is to obtain an independent medical examination. The purpose of the IME is to get a doctor to comment on causal relation. And another uh, factor that plays into getting an IME is to obtain the employee's complete medical history. It's very important to do that because we need to obtain information that may show whether the alleged condition is pre-existing or whether it arose during a period of prior employment. Right, and we'll talk in a minute about getting that complete medical history and what we do specifically to get it. All right, let's talk about the last legal consideration. Yes, the legal last consideration is apportionment. Now, this doesn't come into play until time of permanency, but Section 44 does allow for apportionment to be raised by the last employer who is generally found to be liable for the claimed occupational disease should it be found to be compensable. However, there are exceptions to apportionment, such as lung, certain lung diseases that are called the cotocosis conditions, which are not apportionable. Sure. And before we move into actually defending these claims or our actual strategies for defending them, let's talk quickly about just how we close these. What, what are the ways that these cases can be closed? Occupational injuries can be closed in three ways. Uh, one, we can go to trial and litigate the claim and to judgment, in which case a judge would make a call on compensability and or permanency. Mm-hmm. Um, the parties can also come to a compromise, which is generally what we call a settlement under a Section 32. Mm-hmm. Um, we could also prevail in trial and also obtain a dismissal or a no, for, no further action status, which would get rid of the case. Right, and the no further action status could be obtained if the claimant just refuses to participate, disappears off the face of the earth, as we've seen happen many times. Or fails to pursue it by failing to attend IMEs of that nature. Yep. All right, let's talk a little bit for everybody about specifically how we defend these cases. Um, Now, I think it goes without saying, Haley, we're telling our clients, basically, we deny occupationals. Yes, we generally do deny occupational claims um, almost always unless there are extenuating circumstances um, as there are a lot of legal and factual and medical issues that need to be parsed out. Right, and the reason we almost always recommend that these be denied uh, or have the default position be denied is because the legal presumptions run in our favor in, in the occupational context. The burden is upon the claimant to demonstrate actual exposure, uh, and to demonstrate there's an actually causally related illness. Now, that's unlike the presumptions uh, that are running in a typical a non-witness traumatic, traumatic right? injury case. And, you know, so these are defendable cases, and we'll talk about exactly how we defend them. Um, so our typical response when, when we're discussing these with uh, clients in a pre-litigation status is they're coming to us and saying, look, here are the facts, what should we do? And uh, typically I'm providing them with the electronic denial codes uh, that they will put into uh, hopefully their FROID-04, which is the electronic denial. We then support that electronic denial by su- filing supporting pleadings, including the PH 16.2, the attorney certification of controversy, and serving all the discovery. Uh, so now we've done that. What's the next step, Haley? The next step would be, as all denial cases are, it will be listed for a pre-hearing conference. And at that conference, generally, uh, the law calls for the deny cases to be on this quote-unquote rocket docket where there are certain time markers that things need to be submitted. However, in occupational claims, we're going to request that the case be removed from the expedited calendar or the rocket docket so that the parties have enough time to engage in investigation, obtaining surveillance, um, have enough time to receive responses to subpoena requests so that we have all of our 
basis covered in regard to engaging in medical investigation. Right, and in the typical denial context, from the date of the pre-hearing conference until the date the judgment is to be rendered is 60 days. Yes. Which means we've got to do all of our discovery, we've got to get all our subpoenas out for any medical information we need to have, exchange yes. with our adversaries, get their reports, uh, and depose their physicians all within that period of time. It puts us behind the eight ball. That's difficult to complete a full It case. does, which is why we always request. And the ju law judges do know this, and they generally will almost automatically remove occupational claims from the rocket docket, but we do always request that it be removed from it. And it, another part of that is also because a trial process is also longer. We may have multiple fact witnesses that come in. We may need several days of trial to depose everybody. Right, and the more time that we have, time is on our side in these yes. situations. All right, the other consideration that, you know, uh, I always think about is the actual exposures. You know, um, right now we're just putting up a screen showing some of the uh, YouTube footage, drone footage actually, over the giant uh, blast site that occurred in China last week where a chemical factory blew up, 19 people got blown up, 300 people were injured, massive explosions. Well, you know, we don't typically see occupational claims or illness claims that have a obvious cause from some obvious exposure, right? right? I mean, the typical ones that I see are somebody works someplace for 15 years or 20 years and then says, uh, now I have an occupational pulmonary claim exactly. and it's quite nebulous and vague. Uh, or they were a construction worker and they worked on my work site for a year and a half and now are claiming that they're totally disabled, disabled. due to silicosis or exactly. some other breathing disability. Or I have someone who's maybe a clerk or a typist who's claiming that they now have bilateral carpal, carpal tunnel. tunnel. Uh, or something else, and, and when you actually look into the exposures, you say to yourself, well, these are very minor exposures. We, we rarely see a smoking gun. However, we still have to defend these cases, and, you know, I just want to relay one story. I, I once defended a company that had the word chemical in its name, and they actually manufactured uh, 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 solvents for use in making paint. And we were de defending these uh, workers' compensation occupational pulmonary claims for this company. And we were able to prove all sorts of, uh, or bring in all sorts of information, including NIOSH reports, air sampling reports, personal protective equipment uh, certification reports, showing that this was a very, very hygienic environment and the industrial hygiene was, con was and the safety of the workers was paramount. However, we lost uh, many of the cases, and the presiding judge actually said to me, Greg, you actually lost the case when they named the, the company XXX Chemical. chemical. They had chemical in the title, Greg. I think there was chemicals there, and they were exposed to them. So that's the level of bias that we're really facing you know, in exactly. the Workers' Compensation Board. But the things that you can give us as the defense attorneys that help us defend the cases are the things uh, like these, the pieces of information that are listed up here. Um, now, you've defended pulmonary occupational cases before. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you relied upon in that defense. Yeah, similar to the case you just mentioned about something, something chemical, um, there was a construction worker. He's been a quote-unquote sand hog. That's the role that he plays for 40 years. However, in the employer that I defended, he was just, uh, I guess he was a cleaner. He was cleaning the break room, and so... At, the year and a half he was with the employer that I was defending, he wasn't boring tunnels, he wasn't on the mole. So quite actually removed. Actually very removed from the dust exposure that he said, that he alleged that was continuing at this last employer. And so, mm -hmm. yes, the question of exposure definitely is something that is fact sensitive. Mm -hmm. But as you said, because his title was Sandhog, the presumption was, oh, if he's a sand dog, he must be down in the tunnels with all the dusts and sure. all the fumes. Sure. And, you know, 
it's important for us to be able to marshal evidence because, you know, what we're talking about really here is just the bias of the judge. He says, oh, well, this type of employment, I'm familiar with generally what that person does, or I know that bakers are around dusts in the air and exactly. all sorts of flowers. They must be. And so we really have to do a lot to overcome that. And uh, we've been very successful in getting um, excellent industrial hygiene reports, yes. things that show air sampling, things that show that there are procedures in place to comply with OSHA guidelines. Um, and then present those to the judge. Um, we've also presented information, things like awards uh, that some of our employers have won for maintaining such safe Hygiene and sanitary. And safety, right. Yes. And, and this stuff is very important, and it doesn't seem like um, like evidence in a legal trial that they won an but award. But it really does help. It yes. absolutely does. And having testimony from an employer, which I did, to say yes, there is dust in the general vicinity. However, like you said, um, the measures that the employers take. To mitigate mm -hmm. the exposure, mm -hmm. I think, was also helpful in a lot of the witnesses that I brought in. Right. And in the context of noise, um, we've also had some interesting outcomes where uh, the claimants were all presenting that they were around demolition and blasting in the workplace. Uh, but then when we talked with the employer, the employer informed us that, no, actually, whenever we do anything that's going to have a loud noise, there's going to be demolition, there's going to be blasting. We actually clear the work site. We actually send everybody out of the work site so that they would never be exposed to that. And that's why at the very bottom here we put the word chronicity or was the workplace cleared. Because, you know, information about that type of mitigation that's going into play, that's very valuable for us to be able to present to the court. It is, and it's not something everybody thinks to ask. Like, sure. number one, was the employee even clocked in the day that they were doing the blasting? Right. And there clearly wasn't any exposure. Right, right. All right, so moving along, uh, medical discovery. Tell us about some of the medical discovery things that we do. Uh, so number one, we always check to see what the claimant actually lists on his or her C3, which is their act, uh, official claim form that they file with the board. Um, they should list any prior doctors they've seen or any prior conditions or surgeries they've undergone. Um, in addition to checking that, we also always serve um, a HIPAA form to the claimant and his or her attorney and also serve them with the C-3.3, which is also a limited release of health information. Um, we also turn to the employer. The employer can have very valuable medical information, such as information regarding any long-term or short-term disability the employee may have requested. Um, and the purpose of that also is to figure out who, uh, which doctors or which medical procedures this claimant um, underwent and really just figuring out who to subpoena just to get a more complete picture of the claimant's medical sure. picture. And, you know, I often get the con the pushback from the employer and they'll say, I'll say, listen, I, I want this person's entire medical claims file. I want to know every long-term disability application they ever filed or short-term or I want to know uh, when they were missing work and they brought back in a doctor's note. I want to see who the doctor was. So that's, I can subpoena that physician and the employers get a little squirrely, right? Because they, they start going, Greg, wait a second. Uh, I'd love to give you this information, but doesn't isn't there a HIPAA problem with that? Isn't that a HIPAA violation if I start sharing with you um, claim forms that this person made against their private health insurance, which maybe we were self-insured or not, or long-term disability applications they made while they worked for me? Well, the answer to that is no. There's absolutely no um, HIPAA expectation of privacy in the workers' compensation context. If you bring a workers' compensation claim against your employer and put your health into question in the workers' compensation claim, it's absolutely fair game and there are no HIPAA complications to the employer than turning over health information that they know about you to their outside counsel. So uh, sometimes there is pushback about that one, but those can be very valuable records for us from yes, the defense I point agree. of view. All right, and I just wanted to mention that in New York, there are a lot of autopsies 
other states do not have automatic autopsies um, of accident or injury victims, but New Jersey does. Uh, I'm sorry, New York does. Uh, New Jersey doesn't, but New, Jer- New York does. And uh, by law, uh, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner actually has to do an autopsy every time there's an accidental death. Uh, and those are useful um, in the context of uh, injuries that are cardiovascular in nature, uh, for example, uh, an aneurysm which erupts or something like that. And an autopsy can really get to the bottom of what actually um, led to the final death. All right, let's talk briefly about um, independent medical examinations. Um, We, in the occupational context, strongly recommend you allow counsel the opportunity to help participate in the selection of IME physicians. Um, We've found that, particularly in New York, uh, some of the IME physicians have been uh, captured uh, by claimants, and they're too paternalistic, they're too sympathetic, and they uh, seem to find occupational disease more than they really should or we would expect them to. Mm-hmm. At the very least, the IME cover letter should be considered um, uh, to run that by counsel, have counsel at least vet it, and start putting questions in there. Um, we're always ready to cross-examine the treating physicians. The best way to do that, really, uh, to cross-examine them is to show that their understanding or assumptions are incorrect. It's right. always better if we have a more complete uh, medical record than the treating physician had when they were treating the claimant. Uh, and that's because it gives us plenty of weapons uh, to turn against them. Yes. Um, finally, New York also has an impartial medical expert panel that mm-hmm. they maintain. I caution all of my clients to be very, very leery of this impartial medical evaluator panel that they offer. Uh, we see the context of especially pulmonary cases where the claimant's pulmonary physician um, will find a total disability, uh, will make very questionable findings, find uh, markings throughout the lungs, will claim that the pulmonary function tests show significant disability, will rely on things like fingertip oxygenation sensors to claim that the person right. has a, a blood oxygen deficiency. And uh, we will select a physician who is board certified, who has uh, much better credentials, typically right. speaking, than the claimant's physicians, and we'll find absolutely no disability. And when we present these to the, to the judge, um, some of the judges recognize that the physicians that the claimants are relying upon are tainted, right? These, they're yes. not credible, and, and you know, they'll say anything for a dollar. Uh, but some of them will still uh, give them credence. And, they will. And, you know, it's upsetting because, you know, we'll have one physician who says, look at all these tests, and these are the gold standard tests of so no disability. Their doctor says 100%. And the, and the judge has the right, and the board has the right, to refer to an impartial. Right. Well, we don't like most of the impartials, by the way, on the pulmonary panel. Um, in fact, some of the, uh, one of the most frequently used on the impartial panel is actually, well, we, we think he's a claimant's physician. I mean, we've we seen s- him on claimant physician uh, examining exams, reports. Right, that right. they've relied on. So, you know, we think that the pulmonary panel is quite flawed. Um, we've also uh, relied on the impartials or been referred to an impartial evaluation uh, by the board panel after board panel reviews. Mm-hmm. This is um, a minefield for clients, and we will give you advice about when it is appropriate or not appropriate and how we should challenge this. Generally speaking, the impartial experts are not impartial based on the our... name is uh, rather misleading. Right, and we've done the testimony and the depositions to uh, be ready to confront them the next time we see them, uh, but my advice is be very cautious. Now, in the context of cardiovascular injuries, things like ruptured aneurysms, um, the impartial panel is actually okay. It's pretty good, uh, but we do like to stay away from them in the pulmonary context. Yes. All right. And lastly, um, another thing we do 
always or generally recommend is surveillance, including self-surveillance, um, having a surveillance footage of a claimant who is running a marathon when he's alleging a pulmonary condition is going to be very helpful um, in our cross of the claimant and in actually just bringing out fraud against this claimant for com coming to the board with a alleged occupational pulmonary condition when he's every weekend, you know, running and running marathons and training. Wakeboarding. Wakeboarding. Right, participating in sports and things like that. And more and more of these dummies are putting them on themselves under self-surveillance. You know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any of the things that they're putting out there, that's all fair game. It uh, is. We've had great success with using some of those um, pieces of information. So let's get them if we can. All right. Uh, now's the time where we go to questions. So I'm going to ask... Um, Haley, who's operating the computer right here to take a look and maybe uh, find us some questions. If we don't get to your questions today, I'm just going to keep talking while she looks for her questions. Uh, if, if we don't get to your question today, please feel free to email us. Um, if you type in a question and we don't reach it, uh, we will email you a response with an answer to your question as quickly as we can. All right. Are you ready with the first question? Yes, Greg. Let me read this first question. The question says, does a widow or dependent who's claiming death benefits as a result of a worker who dies from an occupational disease, do they have the same burden of proof regarding injury, causal relation, and date of disablement? Okay. So this is a burden of proof question. Uh, the only thing that's different from sort of what we've been discussing so far is the person's dead, right? Yes. Okay, so what's the answer? And I would say yes. The estate or the widow or the children, they have the same burden of proof. Um, as Greg stated before, in occupational injuries, the presumption is a little bit more in our favor because they have to carry the burden of showing, number one, that the cause of the worker's death was because of an occupational injury. Um, and they also have the same burden of proof to show that the date of disablement was with the employer that they're filing this claim against. All right. And just before we move on, uh, I really do not like post-mortem <laughs> dependency slash occupational claims because there's nobody to do an IME on, right? I mean, we're going to yes. have to get a forensic report. Right. These are more difficult to defend just from a proof standpoint, but they're also more difficult from their perspective, I think, as well. True. Um, unfortunately, what happens or what I've seen, especially in the occupational asbestosis context, is it's been so long, right? Everybody's dead. The workplace has been closed yes. for a decade. Uh, we've got the post-mortem um, uh, uh, claim being brought, or maybe the claimant was alive, uh, brought the claim, died in the pendency, uh, you know, uh, while, while the case was still pending. And the widow and, just takes over. Right. And those are challenging. And, I, you know, one of the things that's a challenge about it is the widow comes and says all sorts of crazy things, and they're hard to refute. Oh, he came home from the workplace every day. He was covered coughing. in dust, and he was coughing, and he said, oh, my goodness, you know, I was breathing all this stuff today. And, and now we've got to refute this sort of out-of-court uh, statement, pure hearsay. hearsay. Yeah, over and over again. Uh, they're challenging to defend. Um, my experience is most of them get disposed of for minimal Section 32. So that's I've what seen I that too. Okay. And like you said, the proof is hard because there's also the sympathy card against mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. widow or the children who've recently just lost their father or mother. Mm -hmm. All right. And any other questions? Uh, yes. Here's another one we think we have time to address. It says, can a claim of depression or other mental disease also qualify as occupational injuries? Yeah, I and think I the think answer, the answer is, yes. is yes. Yeah. 
You, um, can, you can definitely have an occupational mental disease. Um, I think I do from having worked in this job for so long. <laughs> uh, as we all. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the burden of proof is, is difficult in those cases as well for our claimants to, to demonstrate, right? Uh, exactly. Um, I've read about a case um, where the claimant was alleging that the stress from her job is what's an occupational claim and the burden of proof for her was that the stress that she experienced was greater than you know other similarly situated employees That's right. because if the stress is the same exact level of stress for everybody across the board then there's nothing that's distinctive about right. the employment that's directed at her that caused her that mental illness that she was alleging yep and in the context context of the psychiatric claims just normal workplace situations, being reprimanded at work, right. disciplined, terminated, right. uh, having a negative personnel review or something like that, that's really not going to constitute. It's not. That's expected People to be... People think that they can be <laughs> compensated for that, but... Right. Even a little yelling's okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on from questions. It's gone on for... We've been now about 20 minutes into this uh, webinar. Look, any other questions, please feel free to either call us or send us an email. Uh, remember, we do this webinar every month. Uh, this is the third Monday of the month webinar. These are now going to be done as part of the Lois Law Firm. Next month, my, me and my associate, Tom Park, uh, will be doing a webinar called Getting the Most from Your IMEs. And we're going to be exploring using an IME effectively, uh, what it takes or what kind of physicians we're looking for to do IMEs, and what uh, who testifies well. So we're going to be doing all that next week. Thank you very much, great. Haley. No, thank you, Greg, for your okay. time. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.